Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. What is liturgy? I have often had conversations in church regarding our worship that have gone something along the lines of this. I feel more American than X. X being an ethnicity, whether Coptic, Armenian, Greek. I'm sure we have all heard something like this before in our conversations in our churches, particularly among the young and among those older who want to be hip and relevant. Yet if this is how we approach the matter of worship then we have a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are anyway. This is because we see worship as a cultural expression, whether we are aware of it or not. This type of conversation will not be helpful nor fruitful toward an understanding of why worship is the way it is in apostolic churches. It will be something along the lines of trying to argue with someone why the type of music you like is better than the music they like. How far do you think that conversation will go? How likely is it that it will end peacefully? If you notice with this example, musical preferences are subjective and thus are self-centered. Yet we do not approach God in a self-centered fashion, but in a Christ-centered fashion. In order to get an understanding of how we should worship, we must go back to the first generations of the church and find out how they understood themselves. In the first generations of the church, we find that the followers of our Lord Jesus understood themselves in two ways, as disciples and as brethren. This creates two frameworks for thinking about the first Christian communities, and since we are apostolic, about ourselves. Number one, the school, as evidenced by the use of the word disciples, which literally means student. And two, the family, as evidenced by the use of the word brethren. If we reflect further on these characterizations in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to an understanding of how our lives are to be shaped. First, Christ is our teacher. When we learn from a teacher, we receive the mind of the teacher. We come to be like him in some way. We learn to think in similar fashion as the teacher. Also, school is oriented toward the future. It is there to prepare us to stand on our own and to navigate the world on our own. But in the case of our Lord, He lives in us, and by the teaching we receive from His deeds and His words, we navigate the world too. Second, we have become children of God by joining the body of His only begotten Son. While school may come to an end, a family never does. It is the smallest unit of society that can function. It is who we are. We have entered the household of God when we have entered the church. It is in the light of these two frameworks that we must begin to approach the matter of worship. As you can see, neither one of these is self-centered. Both frameworks point us to things that are outside of us. First, God, then second, the Christian community, that is, the church.
We must grow by conforming to both, just as we conform to our teachers and to our families. We don't make them conform to us, otherwise we would never learn anything, nor would we understand the meaning of family. Next, we need to have a grasp of the terms that are used to describe worship in the Bible to understand what shape our own worship should take. We must begin with the term liturgy, which was the word that is used to describe the worship service in the early church and is still used to describe the worship service in the Orthodox Church. The word liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgia, which means a work done for the people. This type of work is done for the benefit of the people, and it is carried out by one who is called liturgos. Liturgos is often translated as minister in the Bible, because he is the one who carries out the liturgia, or ministry, as it is often translated in English Bibles. This is because in the Greco-Roman world at the time the New Testament was written, this word was used to describe public officials who did works to benefit the populace. If you will notice, the words minister and ministry often describes agents and actions that are carried out by the government to keep society functioning smoothly. This may not be readily apparent for us in the United States, but in other English-speaking countries they have prime ministers, the ministry of education, the ministry of finance, and other such offices. Yet when the Old Testament was translated into the Greek language around 250 years before the birth of Christ, and thus expressed biblical ideas in the Greek language, the Jewish translators translated the words that described temple worship from its structure to its sacrifices as liturgia, and the role of priests as liturgos, especially the officiating priest. The Hebrew terms were consistently translated into these Greek terms. What is interesting in all this, as we will see later, is that these terms pop back up in the New Testament to describe Christian worship. This has implications for what Christian worship should look like. Next, when the priest made an offering, the word he used to describe the act of offering was anaphero, which means to carry up. It comes from the Greek word anaphora, which means an offering. Now, while these two terms don't always have a liturgical context, it is very easy to determine when they do. Further, the word to describe a sacrifice as a whole is thesia, and the word altar is thesia styrion as the place where the sacrifice is offered. With all this in mind, we begin to trace out the idea of what liturgical worship is, as opposed to non-liturgical worship. Liturgical worship has the following characteristics. Number one, it is highly structured, both in terms of its rituals and in its calendar of feast days that determine different elements in its worship services. Number two, there are different roles for priests, for assistants, and for the congregation. And number three, it has sacrifices and an altar on which is centered the worship of the people. What is interesting about all this is that both the Jews and the early Christians understood the universe in terms of a temple. And if a temple, then by extension its structured workings as a liturgy. How? The universe from our point of view has a calendar and that affects things on earth. For example... In the winter, the sun is much further to the south in its path across the sky from east to west. This causes the days to be short and cold, the trees to have no leaves, the mountains to be covered with snow, 
and many animals to hibernate. Further, the stars that appear at night are different in the winter than in the summer. In the summer, on the other hand, the sun is further to the north in its path across the sky from east to west. This causes the days to be long and hot, the plants to flourish, the animals are very active in bearing young, and the stars in the night sky are different than in the winter. Also, in the movement from winter to summer, there is a regular rhythm of trees flowering, snow melting, animals waking, and new animals being born. This structure and calendar resemble a liturgy in a temple. From this reason being one among many reasons, the Jews and Christians saw the universe as a temple. This begins with Genesis chapter 1. To bring this into focus, we must begin with the context of the ancient world. Virtually all human groups saw the world as divine, whether as a whole or in its many different parts. For example, the Mesopotamians described the sun as a god and the gods Shamash and later in Marduk. The Egyptians saw the sun as a god too, in Ra. The Greeks also associated the sun with the god Apollo, among many other sun gods. It even got to the point that different aspects of the sun, whether its shape, or its rays, or its heat, or its movement, became gods themselves. The whole world was god. Genesis, on the other hand, describes the world in terms of a temple as opposed to divine. But how can we confidently make this determination? We can do this by looking at the language used in Genesis chapter 1 in context with other parts of the Bible, as well as in context with other Near Eastern religions. First, we see that humans are created in the image and likeness of God. The word image used in Genesis chapter 1 in the original Hebrew is the same word used to describe the images of gods placed in ancient temples, that is, idols as it is used in other places in the Bible. Further, as the scholar N.T. Wright points out, in the ancient Near East, the last thing placed in the temple was the image of the God, just as we see with the creation of humans in Genesis chapter 1. We as human beings endowed with reason are the images of God, and unlike idols, we are alive, and if we are images, then the universe is a temple. The point of all this in Genesis is that it is demythologizing the world and pointing to all of it as being the result of one good and ordered God, as opposed to being the result of violence between many gods, as have been the case in all ancient mythology. If you are in doubt as to whether this was how Genesis 1 was viewed by the ancient Jews, let us go to John chapter 1, which is another take on creation. But unlike in Genesis chapter 1, where it looks primarily at God's work, John 1 looks primarily at God's word, the Logos, as creator. It also begins with the words, in the beginning, to bring us back to the creation of the world. It also uses language which may not be readily apparent in English, but definitely in the Greek that brings us back to Genesis chapter 1, especially in its Greek translation in the Septuagint. At the end of all creation, the Logos himself enters into the world of flesh, in likeness to how the image of God entered into creation in humanity at the end of Genesis chapter 1. However, in this case, it is the image himself who becomes flesh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
The word for dwelt among us in the original Greek of John 1 is not the word that is used most of the time to mean dwell, as in to live somewhere, whether it is among a people or in a house, but it is the word that indicates tabernacle. This means the Logos, who is our Lord Jesus, has become the temple of the creation. For John, to describe the creation of the world as also culminating in a temple, supports the idea that the Jews saw Genesis 1 as a description of a temple. If you are also doubting about this interpretation of John 1, our Lord refers to his body as a temple in John 3. Back to the idea of the universe as a liturgy. There is imagery in the Old Testament that runs throughout that gives the suggestion of a liturgy. We have just seen the temple imagery in both the universe as a whole and in humans in particular, and in our Lord Jesus without a doubt. This temple imagery returns in the New Testament in us as believers in Christ, but more on that a little later. Apart from the imagery of the temple, there is also baptismal imagery in the Old Testament apart from liturgical rituals. For example, in the beginning of Genesis there is water, and it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have the image of water and spirit, such as in baptism. Further, the word hovering in Hebrew comes from a word that describes a bird as it is laying on its eggs in its nest in order to bring life to what is within the eggs. This means that the Spirit is being described as a bird. Indeed, at the baptism of our Lord Jesus, who is the temple, he enters into the waters and the Spirit in the form of a dove rests upon him. To connect with the temple, when the priests entered the temple, the first act they did was to wash at the laver in front of the temple. Then when they entered the holy place, they saw the light of the lampstand. In Genesis, following this imagery of baptism, light follows. Next, we see the same imagery appear in Noah's flood. The world has become wicked, so God makes an end of it but he will preserve a remnant by placing all terrestrial animal life and human life on the ark. The world is flooded, so the old world comes to an end, but those on the ark remain. When the rains stop, Noah sends forth a raven, but it does not come back. Later, he sends forth a dove, and it comes back. But after seven more days, seven days, it comes back with an olive branch. We see again the imagery of the water and the spirit, and the typology of the dove. This time the world has been recreated. A new creation emerges from the waters. Then in the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, when they come to the Red Sea, they cross over from Egypt into Sinai through the waters. The wind divides the waters. There is the pillar of fire between them and the Egyptians. In the case of the Egyptians to prevent, in the case of the Israelites to illuminate and guide. In the book of Acts, when the Spirit descends upon the apostles, they first hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then he descends upon them in the form of fire. So again in the Exodus, we have the imagery of baptism. They move from death into life. After the Exodus with the giving of the law, in Hebrew Torah, worship took a much more structured form, its liturgical form, we see the images of temple and baptism, both in the water and with the presence of the Spirit, recurring over and over in the rituals of the temple. That liturgy, as mentioned earlier, has three general characteristics. Number one, 
It is highly structured, both in terms of its rituals and in its calendar of feast days that determine different elements in its worship services. Number two, there are different roles for priests, for assistants, and for the congregation. And number three, it has sacrifices and an altar on which is centered the worship of the people. As we understand from the New Testament, these rituals were foreshadowings of what was to come in Christ. But even in the New Testament, we still find the temple and baptismal imagery applied to Christian worship. It begins with the baptism of Christ, which marks the beginning of his ministry. He descends into the waters, and a priest, John the Baptist, is the one who baptizes him. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove, which brings to mind many occurrences of such imagery in the Old Testament. This points out something about the one who is baptized, that he is embodying the whole of the revelation of God. Then God the Father speaks, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As seen in John 1, the culmination of the revelation of the incarnation of the Logos is his baptism. Yet this imagery does not stop in the New Testament after the resurrection, but it continues even after the giving of the new covenant sealed by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In his epistles, the Apostle Paul teaches that the Exodus typologically refers to baptism, that is, Christian baptism. Further, he also refers to baptism as putting on Christ, and that language appears in several of his epistles. Also, in his first epistle, the Apostle Peter teaches that the ark and the flood was an antitype of baptism that now saves us. While antitype also refers to typological interpretation, it is often not clear as to what this word literally means. The best translation for this word is correspondence. That is, the ark and the flood correspond as shadows to the reality of the sacrament of baptism. So let us recap. The world was described as a temple in Genesis 1. This was further confirmed by the description in John 1, which is a look at creation with the Logos in mind. The imagery of the temple continues throughout the Old Testament, as well as the imagery of baptism, including water and the Spirit. This does not stop in the New Testament, but continues with the explanation that the Old Testament rituals were the shadows of the New Testament realities. With all this in mind, the question is not whether we should have a liturgy, but what shape that liturgy should take. We will explore that further in our next episode. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.